Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll continue our study of Hebrews in chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews chapter 3. Now, it's one of the most common themes that we see in human relationships, unmet expectations of our parents. Who has not heard the story of a parent placing too high of expectations upon their children? This can happen in the field of academics where a parent wants their child to perform well and they expect that they receive high A's on every class and test they take. They'll earn multiple AP credits in high school, receive entrance and scholarships to Harvard and Yale and all the other Ivy League schools. Or maybe it's in the field of sports. A father wants his son to earn a basketball scholarship, and so he sends his son to every clinic he can afford, hires private coaches, plays politics to get his son more playing time, and is disappointed when he's not the highest scorer or leading rebounder. Now, there's nothing wrong with helping and encouraging your child to work hard and to achieve what they can achieve. It's good to guide and to direct. However, When expectations are unreasonable or rooted in pride or vicarious desires, they become unhealthy and counterproductive. More than once, I've heard of children who gave up on academics or on sports, not because their talent was lacking, but rather because the expectations were just too high. They felt as though they could never live up to these expectations. Now, many times it's not apparent that places such unreasonable expectations upon us. Many times we place them upon ourselves. We set goals that are unreasonable. We want to lose 20 pounds in a month. We want to retire as a millionaire by the time we turn 30. We want to receive the most competitive grants. We want our homes to look as though they're straight out of Southern living and our clothes from Vogue. We want our families to run smoothly our meals to be healthful, our budgets to be balanced, and when we're not able to live up to such a high calling, we become discouraged. When reality doesn't meet our expectations, we can become anxious and overwhelmed or despondent and unmotivated. This is the case when it comes to academics, sports, finances, career, home life, and health. And maybe above all else, Living up to expectations affects our spiritual lives. The standard is so high and our performance is so weak, we often feel shame and confusion and frustration about how we are to live a spiritually healthy life. You read the Ten Commandments, and if we are honest, we know that we've broken each one of them in thought, word, or deed. If we were able to delude ourselves into believing that we have perfectly obeyed, such delusions are destroyed by Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which tells us that if we even speak a hateful word towards another, we are guilty of murder. If we look in lust, that we've committed adultery. The expectations that we have spiritually come to a crescendo at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Talk about high parental expectations. 
As in other areas of life, there seems to be two basic human responses to these expectations. Either we see these high expectations and we create rigid standards and put on an air of holiness, or we give up and say, well, no one is perfect. I'm sure God understands. Isn't that what grace is for? When our high expectations meet the reality of life, we will either become judgmental legalists or lethargic libertines. And yet, neither response is what God has called His people toward. Rather, He has called His people to live in accordance with His Word, and yet to do it in His power. The standard is perfection, but the path is in Christ. In our passage for this morning, we read that we have a heavenly calling. We have an expectation of being fit to dwell in eternal perfection and glory. However, the way that we meet that expectation is not by running to the law, nor is it by abandoning the pursuit of holiness altogether. Rather, what we will see is that the only way that we can possibly meet spiritual expectations is to trust in the work of Christ alone. So hear now the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father God, we come to you now in this time and we confess that as we read your word and as we read the high expectations of it, that we are prone to judge ourselves wrongly, believing that we can obey every single law, or we give up and we believe that there is no way that we might pursue holiness because of the weakness of our flesh. Would you teach us from your word what it means to follow and to trust in your Son, that through Him we would know that you accept and receive and love us. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Maybe the most famous and influential person to ever feel the weight of unmet spiritual expectations was Martin Luther. 
As you no doubt learned in school at some point, Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation in 1517 when he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. He was protesting the selling of indulgences by the Roman Catholic Church, which this is an oversimplification, but essentially was selling forgiveness. However, What you might not know was that Luther went through an arduous spiritual journey prior to this protest. Luther was a man who took the Word of God very seriously. He was a monk and he wanted to live up to his vows in scrupulous detail. And so daily he would spend hours confessing his sin, seeking the Lord's forgiveness. He would go into the most minute detail about everything he did and everything he thought. And he would even sometimes feel guilty that he took pride in the fact that he did such a good job confessing his sin, that he had to confess the fact that he was thinking that he was so good at confessing his sin. Now there was a man assigned to him to listen to his confessions, called his confessor. And finally, this man got so fed up with Luther that he said, why don't you go commit some real sins? And then sent him off to college. Luther was tormented by high expectations. The high expectations of Scripture that made demands for perfect and perpetual holiness. And verses like verse 1 of our text add to the weight of this burden. Look there, it says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, real quickly, we see three very high expectations. The first is that The audience is referred to as holy. To be holy is to be separate, is is to be cleansed of sin. It is quite literally to be a saint, for the word holy and the word saint are just two translations of the same underlying Greek word. The readers of this text and we who hear it now are being called saints. Second, We have a heavenly calling. There is an expectation that we will live towards and we will reach heaven itself. And third, in our holiness and heavenliness, we are to consider Jesus. Great. How am I supposed to live up to that? I'm to be holy, heavenly, and set Jesus as my example? Literally, the eternal Son of God is the standard? How could I ever live up to such expectations? How can I be holy when I'm filled with sin? How can I be fit for heaven if I'm barely fit for earth? How can I follow Jesus when I can barely keep up with my next door neighbors or the person in the pew behind me? If that is the standard, then maybe this Christianity thing just isn't for me. And maybe you feel that way when you come into this sanctuary. Maybe you're a visitor and you look around and you think, these expectations are just too high. I don't know if I can fit in this church. Or maybe you've been coming for a long time with your family and you feel the weight of expectation that the standard is too high and you just don't belong. 
If this is where we stopped in our text, we too would fall into the despair of young Luther. We would look at the expectation and say, there's just no way. But as we continue in our text, we see that hopelessness is not at all what we should feel as we read God's Word, but rather it should lead us to trust in the faithfulness of Christ. Look at the second half of verse 1, then into verse 2. It says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. You see, we are called to consider Jesus, but not primarily as an example, but rather as our representative. That is to say, our hope is not in our ability to emulate Christ in our faithfulness, but rather it is in His faithfulness. The author is beginning this contrast between Jesus and Moses that will be filled out more as we progress through chapter 3 and even into chapter 4. But right here, we see that Jesus, like Moses, acts as a faithful mediator in his role as apostle and high priest. This is the only place in Scripture where Jesus is referred to as an apostle. And that word means one who has been sent with a message. And here we see that Jesus was sent to bring the word of God to his people. Even as Moses was sent to deliver the law to God's people, Jesus was sent to speak the very word of God to us. However, Jesus not only brought God's law as an apostle, but as a high priest, He has also brought God's people to God Himself. You see, as Moses prayed and offered sacrifices for the people of Israel, Jesus has prayed and He has offered the sacrifice of His own blood on behalf of the church. And when we combine these two roles, as the text says that we are to consider Jesus as an apostle and as a high priest of our confession we see that He is the mediator between God and man. That is, He represents God to man as an apostle, speaking the very words of God to us, and He also represents man to God, the high priest. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul explains this truth, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What are we to do with the spiritual expectations that we just cannot meet? How are we to evaluate our lives in light of our failure to live up to this heavenly calling? The Word of God teaches us that we are not to consider our own unfaithfulness, but rather we are to consider the ultimate and perfect faithfulness of Jesus who acts on our behalf. We are to consider the faithfulness of Jesus to bring us to God, to make us holy and fit for heaven. How is it that sinners like us are called holy brothers? Because Jesus offered a sacrifice that cleanses us of our sin, and through Christ we are declared and made holy. 
How is it that people like us who can't even make their bed in the morning are said to have a heavenly calling? Because Jesus has opened the way for us to God through His apostolic work. The expectations for holiness are high. In fact, the standard is perfection. However, the standard is not achieved by us, but rather by Christ alone. He is our mediator. He is our representative. And it is in Christ and in Christ alone that we are accounted as holy and heavenly. As we hear the proclamation that we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, it is meant to drive us to the only one who ever lived up to that standard. Jesus Christ alone. It's one of our favorite shows to watch as a family. It's called Nailed It. Has anybody seen this show, Nailed It? For those of you who are not familiar with the show, they bring in these three unexperienced bakers and give them the task of recreating a designer cake. And so they reveal the model cake and give each of the contestants a set amount of time to make what they see. However, the cakes that they're tasked with making are over-the-top difficult and detailed. They're not just merely mixing together a box of Betty Crocker. They're asked to make cakes that are shaped like Elvis or Alice in Wonderland or a dinosaur. And so these inexperienced bakers try their best to bake the cake, design the structure, and decorate it with fondant and icing, all in this constrained amount of time. At the end of the show, they reveal their attempts. And this is where the humor begins. Inevitably, somebody's cake will fall apart before they can even reveal it. They put the icing on while the cake was still hot and it's melting down. And so the human faces that they try to make are grotesque and look like fall, their eyes are falling out of the sockets. They try to make the dinosaur, but the arms don't quite match, and it looks maybe more like a green mouse or something. And in comparison to the model, their creations look like the work of a preschooler. And as they reveal each horrible mess, they ironically exclaim, Nailed it! And the reason that the show is so funny is that it connects with our own failed attempts to live up to expectations to copy the expert work of others. Whether it's a recipe or a craft or a home project, I think that we have all tried to recreate something that we saw online or we read in a book and we failed miserably. The expectation of our building skills do not quite match up with reality. And that is so often the way that our spiritual lives play out our attempts at following the Lord, we think that we grow in holiness by looking at the examples of others who have done it perfectly, and then we emulate it in our own lives. We think that if we could be like Abraham, have courage like David, commitment like Ruth, boldness like Esther, then we would nail this Christian life, and God would accept us. Now, there is some value in emulating others. 
Moral examples are good. We should look to others. As we come to Hebrews chapter 11, we have a list of examples, and yet the examples that we are called to follow are examples of faith. Examples of not looking to our own power, but rather looking to the power of God. The examples that are held up for us are those who abandon their own power and trusted in God. The words of Psalm 127 are so important in this regard. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The expectations of nailing the Christian life, of being faithful to the calling to which we have been called, must never rest upon our own shoulders, our own talents and strengths, but rather they must rest upon Christ and His work alone. In verses 3 through 4, we read, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. In the Old Testament, there is no more central figure in the building of the Jewish people than Moses himself. He is the one who led the people of God out of Egypt. He delivered to them the law of God. He led them to the promised land. He was a nation builder. And yet here we read that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Because in the end, Moses was part of the home that was being built, but Jesus is the builder himself. Yes, Moses delivered the people, but he did it by the power of God. Yes, he delivered the law, but it was the law of God given to him. And yes, he brought the people of God into the promised land, but it was a land that was given to them by God. Moses was a human actor. He was faithful, but he was faithful in trusting God to do the work. But Jesus is the true Passover lamb, whose blood delivers not from Egypt, but from sin and death. Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. Not just words spoken or written, but the very Word of God itself. And by His resurrection, Jesus has delivered His people out of the realm of death into the promised rest of heaven. The point that the author is making is that from an earthly perspective, Moses was a great and godly man building up the house of God. Nevertheless, even Moses was just merely a reflection of the greater glory that was to come in Christ. And ultimately, it wasn't he that was building the house, but it was God that was building the house through him. But Jesus is the builder himself. In ministry, it is very easy to have unrealistic expectations of your own power to build the house of God. We think that by our winning personalities, great communication skills, administrative prowess, or our deep dedication to spiritual maturity, we are going to be the ones that build God's kingdom on earth. 
many of the problems that the evangelical church faces today is because of this view of pastoral work. We think that if there is success in the church, that means that the pastor's talent is driving it, and therefore will overlook any of the foibles and sins that are apparent and obvious in the leader's life and say, great work is being done through this man. And so we can turn our faces away from the fact that he is doing it in a way that is not according to God's word. On the other hand, if there isn't a whole lot of outward success in a church, we look at the pastor and we think, he just isn't cutting it. Something's wrong with him. God's house isn't being built. And you might also believe that you are able to build your spiritual house. That you will bring spiritual vitality and health into your own life or into the life of your family or your Sunday school or your small group. That you're going to bring life to this church because you saw a great strategy on YouTube about how to build the church. And if we just implement this program, then we will have vitality and health. But we'll never meet the expectation of building ourselves or building the broader church and the people of God because ultimately it is the work of Christ to build His church. And the only effective strategy, if we want to put it that way, is to rest upon the work of God lest we build the house on our own and we labor in vain. For Christ alone is the faithful builder of God's house. A few weeks ago, my three-year-old daughter, Josie, was working on a special work of art that she presented to me after several minutes of diligent cutting and drawing. When she gave it to me, she looked at me and asked something that shocked me a little bit coming out of a three-year-old's mouth. She handed it to me and she said, are you proud of me, Dad? It's the desire that we have within us. We want to make our parents proud. We want their approval. We want to meet their expectations. However, the Word of God teaches us that none of us can live up to what our Heavenly Father has called us to be. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Lord created humanity with the ability to freely obey His Word. However, our first parents chose not to obey, and they plunged all of humanity into bondage to sin slaves of sin and on our own unable to please our heavenly father with our work and we live in that alienation in that shame but the lord was not pleased to leave us in such a place of shame and rebellion rather he determined that he would save his people and once again shine his face of approval upon them Listen to how this plays out in verses 5 through 6. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence 
and our boasting and our hope. Now again, the contrast is being drawn between Moses and Christ. Moses was a great servant in the house of God. He spoke the word of God to Israel. He led the people well. He even spoke prophetically of Christ. In John 5, Jesus says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses was a great servant in the house, but Jesus is a son over the house. Moses shadowed the redemption that was to come, but Jesus is the redemption. Moses spoke God's word, but Jesus is God's word. The metaphor of the house is in reference to the people of God. In the Old Testament, Israel. And in the New Testament, the fulfillment of Israel, the church. And amazingly, this truth is that through Jesus, we are not merely servants in this household, but we are members of the household. That through faith in Christ, we are, as verse 1 says, holy brothers. Or in chapter 2, verse 11, that we covered a few weeks ago, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Christian, the expectations, the calling is too high for anyone to live up to. We cannot possibly be the holy servants of God. But the Word of God tells us an even greater truth, that through Christ the Son, we have all become adopted sons of God. We have become not merely servants in the house of God, trying to earn our place before Him, but we have become members of God's household. Paul explains this truth in Ephesians chapter 1 when he writes, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. High expectations, holy and blameless. But how does it come about? In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. This is how we live up to the expectations. The Father, He adopts us through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is how we live for the glory and honor of God. This is how we make our Heavenly Father proud. Not by looking to our own resources and power and holiness. Not by trusting in our works, but by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, the only faithful Son. For the Father loves the Son. The Father is proud of the Son. The Father is well pleased with the Son. And if by faith you are in Christ, then you belong to God. And the Father is proud of you. And the Father is pleased with you. And the Father loves you. And His approving glory rests upon you. Now, I'm expecting that all of you can keep this secret, okay? Don't ever tell Josie this, but her drawing wasn't very good. A few scribbles on a poorly cut out piece of paper. But to me, it was a treasure because it was offered to me by my child. It was offered in humility and in hope 
and in love and in trust that as her father, I would receive it. And if faith that she had, that as her father, I would love her gift, no matter how weak it was. And we must understand the order of how this relationship works, if we're going to live in confidence and freedom. You see, my daughter has not earned her place in my family because of the quality of her artwork. She doesn't earn her food by doing the little chores that we task our three-year-old, like putting away the silverware or bringing the cups to the table. She doesn't receive acceptance and love because she eats her dinner well and obeys every command, which she doesn't. She isn't loved because she meets expectations. She is loved because she is my child. And this is how we must understand God's love for us. We are not accepted into the family of God because of our great work, but rather because of God's love to choose us before the foundation of the world and through His Son to make us His children. He sent His Son to be our mediator, to be the builder, to be the faithful Son that through His sacrifice and His work and His sonship, all who trust in Christ might be adopted into the family sealed unto eternity. And this is how we must understand this last phrase in verse 6, where we read, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Again, the order is important. It does not say, if we hold fast, then we will become a member of God's house. Rather, it says, if you are a member of God's house, then you will hold fast your confidence in Christ. Your holding fast is evidence of your adoption, of your sonship, not the payment of your sonship. Martin Luther struggled to understand this truth until he finally came to see the reality of the gospel. That we must first be sons by God's grace before we become like the Son. He wrote later, It is not imitation that makes us sons. It is sonships that make us imitators. Christian, you will never live up to the expectation of God's Word on your own. If you try, you will either try to build the house in vain or give up on holiness altogether. Rather, you must come to God through Christ, trusting His sacrifice to make you holy, trusting His work to make you acceptable, trusting His sonship to make you accepted in the family of God through adoption, believing that like a loving Father, the Lord will receive the offering that we bring, not because it is worthy, but rather because we are worthy through Christ, who is met all of God's expectations. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.
Oh, Father, we come to you now at this time and we thank you. We thank you for the teaching of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might and we must become like little children. That we must have the faith of a child, believing that we are accepted not because of the quality of our work, but rather because of what Christ has done on our behalf. May we offer the fullness of our lives, no matter how weak they are, trusting that through Christ we are members of the household of God. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.